Welcome to Institutes of the Christian Religion by John Calvin, translated by Henry Beveridge. We are continuing this reading in Book 2, Chapter 5, Section 15. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more, at great discounts are on the web at www.swrb.com. Also, please consider, pray, and act upon the important truths found in the following quotation by Charles Spurgeon. As the Apostle says to Timothy, So also he says to everyone, Give yourself to reading. He who will not use the thoughts of other men's brains proves he has no brains of his own. You need to read. Renounce as much as you will all light literature, but study as much as possible sound theological works, especially the Puritanic writers and expositions of the Bible. The best way for you to spend your leisure is to be either reading or praying. And now to SWRB's reading of Institutes of the Christian Religion by John Calvin, which we hope you will find to be a great blessing and which we pray draws you nearer to the Lord Jesus Christ, for he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by him. John 14:6. Section 15. Hence it appears that the grace of God, as this name is used when regeneration is spoken of, is the rule of the Spirit in directing and governing the human will. Govern he cannot without correcting, reforming, renovating. Hence we say that the beginning of regeneration consists in the abolition of what is ours. In like manner, he cannot govern without moving, impelling, urging, and restraining. Accordingly, all the actions which are afterwards done are truly said to be wholly his. Meanwhile, we deny not the truth of Augustine's doctrine that the will is not destroyed, but rather repaired by grace the two things being perfectly consistent, viz. that the human will may be said to be renewed when, its viciosity and perverseness being corrected, it is conformed to the true standard of righteousness, and that, at the same time, the will may be said to be made new, being so vitiated and corrupted that its nature must be entirely changed. There is nothing, then, to prevent us from saying that our will does what the Spirit does in us, although the will contributes nothing of itself apart from grace. We must, therefore, remember what we quoted from Augustine, that some men labor in vain to find in the human will some good quality properly belonging to it. Any intermixture which men attempt to make by conjoining the effort of their own will with divine grace is corruption, just as when unwholesome and muddy water is used to dilute wine. But though everything good in the will is entirely derived from the influence of the Spirit, yet, because we have naturally an innate power of willing, we are not improperly said to do the things of which God claims for himself all the praise. First, because everything which his kindness produces in us is our own, only we must understand that it is not of ourselves. And, secondly, because it is our mind, our will, our study, which are guided by him to what is good. Section 16. The other passages which they gather together from different quarters will not give much trouble to any person of tolerable understanding who pays due attention to the explanations already given. They adduce the passage of Genesis, quote, Unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. Unquote. Genesis 4, verse 7. This they interpret of sin, as if the Lord were promising Cain that the dominion of sin should not prevail over his mind, if he would labor in subduing it. We, however, maintain that it is much more agreeable to the context to understand the words as referring to Abel, it being there the purpose of God to point out the injustice of the envy which Cain had conceived against his brother. 
And this he does in two ways, by showing first that it was vain to think he could, by means of wickedness, surpass his brother in the favor of God, by whom nothing is esteemed but righteousness. And secondly, how ungrateful he was for the kindness he had already received, in not being able to bear with a brother who had been subjected to his authority. But lest it should be thought that we embrace this interpretation because the other is contrary to our view, let us grant that God does here speak of sin. If so, his words contain either an order or a promise. If an order, we have already demonstrated that this is no proof of man's ability. If a promise, where is the fulfillment of the promise when Cain yielded to the sin over which he ought to have prevailed? They will allege a tacit condition in the promise, as if it were said that he would gain the victory if he contended. This subterfuge is altogether unavailing. For if the dominion spoken of refers to sin, no man can have any doubt that the form of expression is imperative. Declaring not what we are able, but what it is our duty to do, even if beyond our ability. Although both the nature of the case and the rule of grammatical construction require that it be regarded as a comparison between Cain and Abel, we think the only preference given to the younger brother was that the elder made himself inferior by his own wickedness. Section 17. They appeal, moreover, to the testimony of the Apostle Paul, because he says, quote, It is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. Unquote. Romans 9, verse 15. From this they infer that there is something in will and endeavor, which, though weak in themselves, still being mercifully aided by God, are not without some measure of success. But if they would attend in sober earnest to the subject there handled by Paul, they would not so rashly pervert his meaning. I am aware they can quote Origen and Jerome in support of this exposition. To these I might, in my turn, oppose Augustine. But it is of no consequence what they thought, if it is clear what Paul meant. He teaches that salvation is prepared for those only on whom the Lord is pleased to bestow his mercy, that ruin and death await all whom he has not chosen. He had provided the condition of the reprobate by the example of Pharaoh, and confirmed the certainty of gratuitous election by the passage in Moses, quote, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, unquote. Thereafter he concludes that it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. If these words are understood to mean that the will or endeavor are not sufficient because unequal to such a task, the apostle has not used them very appropriately. We must therefore abandon this absurd mode of arguing, quote, it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, unquote. Therefore there is some will, some running. Paul's meaning is more simple. There is no will, nor running, by which we can prepare the way for our salvation. It is holy of the divine mercy. He indeed says nothing more than he says to Titus when he writes, quote, After that the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. Unquote. Titus 3, verses 4 and 5. Those who argue that Paul insinuated there was some will and some running when he said, quote, It is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, unquote, would not allow me to argue after the same fashion that we have done some righteous works, because Paul says that we have attained the divine favor, quote, not by works of righteousness which we have done, unquote. But if they see a flaw in this mode of arguing, let them open their eyes, and they will see that their own mode is not free from a similar fallacy. The argument which Augustine uses is well-founded, If it is said, inner quote, It is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, close, inner quote, because neither will nor running are sufficient. It may, on the other hand, be retorted, It is not, inner quote, of God that showeth mercy, close, inner quote, because mercy does not act alone, close quote. 
This second proposition being absurd, Augustine justly concludes the meaning of the words to be, that there is no good will in man until it is prepared by the Lord. Not that we ought not to will and run, but that both are produced in us by God. Some, with equal unskillfulness, rest the saying of Paul, quote, We are laborers together with God, unquote. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 9. There cannot be a doubt that these words apply to ministers only who are called, quote, laborers with God, unquote, not from bringing anything of their own, but because God makes use of their instrumentality after he has rendered them fit and provided them with the necessary endowments. Section 18. They appeal also to Ecclesiasticus, who is well known to be a writer of doubtful authority. But though we might justly decline his testimony, let us see what he says in support of free will. His words are, quote, He himself made man from the beginning, and left him in the hand of his counsel. If thou wilt, to keep the commandments, and perform acceptable faithfulness. He hath set fire and water before thee. Stretch forth thy hand unto whether thou wilt. Before man is life and death, and whether him locketh, shall he giveth him. Unquote. Grant that man received at his creation a power of acquiring life or death. What then, if we, on the other hand, can reply that he has lost it? Assuredly, I have no intention to contradict Solomon, who asserts that, quote, God hath made man upright, unquote, that, quote, they have sought out many inventions, unquote, Ecclesiastes 7, verse 29. But since man, by degenerating, has made shipwreck of himself and all his blessings, it certainly does not follow that everything attributed to his nature, as originally constituted, applies to it now when vitiated and degenerate. Therefore, not only to my opponents, but to the author of Ecclesiasticus himself, whoever he may have been, this is my answer. If you mean to tell man that in himself there is a power of acquiring salvation, your authority with us is not so great as, in the least degree, to prejudice the undoubted word of God. But if only wishing to curb the malignity of the flesh, which, by transferring the blame of its own wickedness to God, is wont to catch at a vain defense, you say that rectitude was given to man, in order to make it apparent he was the cause of his own destruction, I willingly assent. Only agree with me in this, that it is by his own fault he is stripped of the ornaments in which the Lord at first attired him, and then let us unite in acknowledging what he now wants is a physician and not a defender. Section 19 there is nothing more frequent in their mouths than the parable of the traveler who fell among thieves and was left half dead. Luke 10, verse 32. I am aware that it is a common idea with almost all writers that under the figure of the traveler is represented the calamity of the human race. Hence our opponents argue that man was not so mutilated by the robbery of sin and the devil as not to preserve some remains of his former endowments, because it is said he was left half dead. For where is the half-living, unless some portion of right will and reason remain? First, were I to deny that there is any room for their allegory, what could they say? There could be no doubt that the fathers invented it contrary to the genuine sense of the parable. Allegories ought to be carried no further than Scripture expressly sanctions, so far are they from forming a sufficient basis to found doctrines upon. And were I so disposed, I might easily find the means of tearing up this fiction by the roots. The word of God leaves no half-life to man, but teaches that, in regard to life and happiness, he has utterly perished. Paul, when he speaks of our redemption, says not that the half-dead are cured. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, and chapter 5, verse 14. But that those who were dead are raised up. He does not call upon the half-dead to receive the illumination of Christ, but upon those who are asleep and buried. In the same way, our Lord himself says, quote, 
The hour is coming, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God. Unquote. John 5, verse 25. How can they presume to set up a flimsy allegory in opposition to so many clear statements? But be it that this allegory is good evidence, what can they extort out of it? Man is half dead, therefore there is some soundness in him. True, he has a mind capable of understanding, though incapable of attaining to heavenly and spiritual wisdom. He has some discernment of what is honorable. He has some sense of the divinity, though he cannot reach the true knowledge of God. But to what do these amount? They certainly do not refute the doctrine of Augustine, a doctrine confirmed by the common suffrages even of the schoolmen, that after the fall the free gifts of which salvation depends were withdrawn, and natural gifts corrupted and defiled. See above, chapter 2, section 2. Let it stand, therefore, as an indubitable truth, which no engines can shake, that the mind of man is so entirely alienated from the righteousness of God that he cannot conceive, desire, or design anything but what is wicked, distorted, foul, impure, and iniquitous, that his heart is so thoroughly envenomed by sin that it can breed out nothing but corruption and rottenness, that if some men occasionally make a show of goodness, their mind is ever interwoven with hypocrisy and deceit, their soul inwardly bound with the fetters of wickedness. Chapter 6. Redemption for Man Lost to be Sought in Christ There are four sections. Section 1. The whole human race having been undone in the person of Adam, the excellence and dignity of our origin, as already described, is so far from availing us that it rather turns to our greater disgrace until God, who does not acknowledge man when defiled and corrupted by sin as his own work, appear as a Redeemer in the person of his only begotten Son. Since our fall from life unto death... All that knowledge of God the Creator, of which we have discoursed, would be useless, were it not followed up by faith, holding forth God to us as a Father in Christ. The natural course undoubtedly was, that the fabric of the world should be a school in which we might learn piety, and from it pass to eternal life and perfect felicity. But after looking at the perfection beheld wherever we turn our eye, above and below, we are met by the divine malediction, which, while it involves innocent creatures in our fault, of necessity fills our own souls with despair. For although God is still pleased in many ways to manifest his paternal favor towards us, we cannot, from a mere survey of the world, infer that he is a father. Conscience urging us within, and showing that sin is a just ground for our being forsaken, will not allow us to think that God accounts, or treats us, as sons. In addition to this are our sloth and ingratitude. Our minds are so blinded that they cannot perceive the truth, and all our senses are so corrupt that we wickedly rob God of his glory. Wherefore, we must conclude with Paul, quote, After that in the wisdom of God the world by wisdom knew not God, it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe, unquote. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 21. By the, quote, wisdom of God, unquote, he designates this magnificent theater of heaven and earth replenished with numberless wonders, the wise contemplation of which should have enabled us to know God. But this we do with little profit, and therefore he invites us to faith in Christ, faith which, by a semblance of foolishness, disgusts the unbeliever. Therefore, although the preaching of the cross is not in accordance with human wisdom, we must, however, humbly embrace it if we would return to God our Maker, from whom we are estranged, that he may again become our Father. It is certain that after the fall of our first parent, no knowledge of God without a mediator was effectual to salvation. Christ speaks not of his own age merely, but embraces all ages, when he says, quote, This is life eternal, that they might know thee the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent, unquote. John 17, verse 3. 
The more shameful, therefore, is the presumption of those who throw heaven open to the unbelieving and profane, in the absence of that grace which Scripture uniformly describes as the only door by which we enter into life. Should any confine our Savior's words to the period subsequent to the promulgation of the gospel, the refutation is at hand, since on a ground common to all ages and nations it is declared that those who are estranged from God, and as such are under the curse, the children of wrath cannot be pleasing to God until they are reconciled. To this we may add the answer which our Savior gave to the Samaritan woman, quote, Ye worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews, unquote. John 4, verse 22. By these words, he both charges every Gentile religion with falsehood, and assigns the reason, viz., that under the law the Redeemer was promised to the chosen people only, and that, consequently, no worship was ever pleasing to God, in which respect was not had to Christ. Hence also Paul affirms that all the Gentiles were, quote, without God, unquote, and deprived of the hope of life. Now, since John teaches that there was life in Christ from the beginning, and that the whole world had lost it, John 1, verse 4, it is necessary to return to that fountain. And accordingly, Christ declares that inasmuch as he is a propitiator, he is life. And indeed, the inheritance of heaven belongs to none but the sons of God, John 15, verse 6. Now it were most incongruous to give the place and rank of sons to any who have not been engrafted into the body of the only begotten Son. And John distinctly testifies that those become the sons of God who believe in his name. But as it is not my intention at present formally to discuss the subject of faith in Christ, it is enough to have thus touched on it in passing. Section 2. Hence it is that God never showed himself propitious to his ancient people, nor gave them any hope of grace without a mediator. I say nothing of the sacrifices of the law, by which believers were plainly and openly taught that salvation was not to be found anywhere but in the expiation which Christ alone completed. All I maintain is that the prosperous and happy state of the church was always founded in the person of Christ. For although God embraced the whole posterity of Abraham in his covenant, yet Paul properly argues in Galatians 3, verse 16, that Christ was truly the seed in which all the nations of the earth were to be blessed, since we know that all who were born of Abraham, according to the flesh, were not accounted the seed to omit Ishmael and others, how it came that of the two sons of Isaac, the twin brothers Esau and Jacob, while yet in the womb the one was chosen and the other rejected. Nay, how came it that the firstborn was rejected and the younger alone admitted? Moreover, how happens it that the majority are rejected? It is plain, therefore, that the seed of Abraham is considered chiefly in one head, and that the promised salvation is not attained without coming to Christ, whose office it is to gather together those which were scattered abroad. Thus the primary adoption of the chosen people depended on the grace of the mediator. Although it is not expressed in very distinct terms in Moses, it, however, appears to have been commonly known to all the godly. Far before a king was appointed over the Israelites, Hannah, the mother of Samuel, describing the happiness of the righteous, speaks thus in her song, quote, He shall give strength unto his king, and exalt the horn of his anointed, unquote, meaning by these words that God would bless his church. To this corresponds the prediction, which is afterwards added, quote, I will raise me up a faithful priest, and he shall walk before mine anointed forever. Unquote. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 10 and 35. And there could be no doubt that our Heavenly Father intended that a living image of Christ should be seen in David and his posterity. Accordingly, exhorting the righteous to fear him, he bids them, quote, kiss the Son, unquote, Psalm chapter 2, verse 12. 
Corresponding to this is the passage in the Gospel, quote, He that honoreth not the Son, honoreth not the Father, unquote. John 5, verse 23. Therefore, though the kingdom was broken up by the revolt of the ten tribes, yet the covenant which God had made in David and his successors behoved to stand, as is also declared by his prophets, quote, Howbeit I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand, but I will make him prince all the days of his life for David my servant's sake, unquote. 1 Kings chapter 11 verse 34. The same thing is repeated a second and a third time. It is also expressly said, quote, I will for this afflict the seed of David, but not forever. Unquote. 1 Kings chapter 11 verse 39. Sometime afterwards it was said, quote, Nevertheless, for David's sake, did the Lord his God give him a lamp in Jerusalem to set up his own after him and to establish Jerusalem. Unquote. 1 Kings 15 verse 4. And when matters were bordering on destruction, it was again said, quote, Yet the Lord would not destroy Judah for David his servant's sake, as he had promised to give him always a lot and to his children. Unquote. 2 Kings 8, verse 19. The sum of the whole comes to this. David, all others being excluded, was chosen to be the person in whom the good pleasure of the Lord should dwell. As it is said elsewhere, quote, He forsook the tabernacle of Shiloh. Unquote. Quote, Moreover, he refused the tabernacle of Joseph, and chose not the tribe of Ephraim, unquote. Quote, but chose the tribe of Judah, the Mount Zion which he loved, unquote. Quote, he chose David also his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds. From following the ewes great with young, he brought him feed Jacob his people, and Israel his inheritance, unquote. Psalm chapter 78, verses 60, 67, 70, and 71. In fine, God, in thus preserving his church, intended that its security and salvation should depend on Christ as its head. Accordingly, David exclaims, quote, The Lord is their strength, and he is the saving strength of his anointed, unquote. And then prays, quote, Save thy people, and bless thine inheritance, unquote, intimating that the safety of the church was indissolubly connected with the government of Christ. In the same sense, he elsewhere says, quote, Save, Lord. Let the king hear us when we call, unquote. Psalm chapter 20, verse 9. These words plainly teach that believers, in applying for the help of God, had their sole confidence in this, that they were under the unseen government of the king. This may be inferred from another psalm, quote, Save now, I beseech thee, O Lord. Blessed be he that cometh in the name of the Lord, unquote. Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. Here it is obvious that believers are invited to Christ and the assurance that they will be safe when entirely in his hand. To the same effect is another prayer in which the whole church implores the divine mercy, quote, Let thy hand be upon the man of thy right hand, upon the son of man whom thou madest strong, or hast fitted for thyself, unquote. Psalm 80, verse 17. For though the author of the psalm laments the dispersion of the whole nation, he prays for its revival in him who is sole head. After the people were led away into captivity, the land laid waste, and matters to appearance desperate. Jeremiah, lamenting the calamity of the church, especially complains that by the destruction of the kingdom the hope of believers was cut off. Quote, the breath of our nostrils, the anointed of the Lord, was taken in their pits, of whom we said, Under his shadow we shall live among the heathen. Unquote. Lamentations, chapter 4, verse 20. From all this it is abundantly plain that as the Lord cannot be propitious to the human race without a mediator, Christ was always held forth to the Holy Fathers under the law as the object of their faith. Section 3. Moreover, when comfort is promised in affliction, especially when the deliverance of the church is described, the banner of faith and hope in Christ is unfurled, quote, Thou wantest forth for the salvation of thy people, even for salvation with thine anointed, unquote, says Habakkuk. 
chapter 3, verse 13. And whenever mention is made in the prophets of the renovation of the church, the people are directed to the promise made to David, that his kingdom would be forever. And there is nothing strange in this, since otherwise there would have been no stability in the covenant. To this purpose is a remarkable prophecy in Isaiah, chapter 7, verse 14. After seeing that the unbelieving king Ahaz repudiated what he had testified regarding the deliverance of Jerusalem from siege and its immediate safety, he passes, as it were, abruptly to the Messiah. Quote, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Unquote. Intimating indirectly that though the king and his people wickedly rejected the promise offered to them as if they were bent on causing the faith of God to fail, the covenant would not be defeated. The Redeemer would come in his own time. In fine, all the prophets, to show that God was placable, were always careful to bring forward that kingdom of David on which redemption and eternal salvation depended. Thus, in Isaiah it is said, quote, I will make an everlasting covenant with you, even the sure mercies of David. Behold, I have given him for a witness of the church as described. The banner of faith and hope in Christ is unfurled, quote, Thou wentest forth for the salvation of thy people, even for salvation with thine anointed, unquote, says Habakkuk. Chapter 3, verse 13. And whenever mention is made in the prophets of the renovation of the church, the people are directed to the promise made to David, that his kingdom would be forever. And there is nothing strange in this, since otherwise there would have been no stability in the covenant. To this purpose is the remarkable prophecy in Isaiah, chapter 7, verse 14. After seeing that the unbelieving king Ahaz repudiated what he had testified regarding the deliverance of Jerusalem from siege and its immediate safety, he passes, as it were, abruptly to the Messiah. Quote, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Unquote. Intimating indirectly that though the king and his people wickedly rejected the promise offered to them as if they were bent on causing the faith of God to fail, the covenant would not be defeated. The Redeemer would come in his own time. In fine, all the prophets, to show that God was placable, were always careful to bring forward that kingdom of David on which redemption and eternal salvation depended. Thus in Isaiah it is said, quote, I will make an everlasting covenant with you, even the sure mercies of David. Behold, I have given him for a witness to the people, unquote. Isaiah chapter 55, verses 3 and 4, intimating that believers in calamitous circumstances could have no hope had they not this testimony that God would be ready to hear them. In the same way, to revive their drooping spirits, Jeremiah said, quote, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper, and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. In his days Judah shall be saved, and Israel shall dwell safely. Unquote. Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6. In Ezekiel also it is said, quote, I will set up one shepherd over them, and he shall feed them, even my servant David. He shall feed them, and he shall be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David a prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken it, and I will make them a covenant of peace. Unquote. Ezekiel chapter 34, verses 23. 24 and 25. And again, after discoursing of this wondrous renovation, he says, quote, David my servant shall be king over them, and they all shall have one shepherd. Unquote. Quote, Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. Unquote. Ezekiel chapter 37 verses 24 through 26. 
I select a few passages out of many, because I merely wish to impress my readers with the fact that the hope of believers was ever treasured up in Christ alone. All the other prophets concur in this. Thus Hosea, quote, Then shall the children of Judah and the children of Israel be gathered together, and appoint themselves one head, unquote. Hosea 1.11. This he afterward explains in clearer terms, quote, Afterward shall the children of Israel return, and seek the Lord their God, and David their king, unquote. Hosea 3.5 Micah also, speaking of the return of the people, says expressly, quote, Their king shall pass before them, and the Lord on the head of them, unquote. Micah 2, verse 13. So Amos, in predicting the renovation of the people, says, quote, In that day will I raise up the tabernacle of David that is fallen, and close up the breaches thereof, and I will raise up the ruins, and I will build it as in the days of old, unquote. Amos 9, verse 11. In other words, the only banner of salvation was the exaltation of the family of David to regal splendor as fulfilled in Christ. Hence, too, Zechariah, as near in time to the manifestation of Christ, speaks more plainly, quote, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, thy king cometh unto thee! He is just, and having salvation, unquote. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. This corresponds to the passage already quoted from the Psalms, quote, The Lord is their strength, and he is the saving health of their anointed, unquote. Here, salvation is extended from the head to the whole body. Section 4. By familiarizing the Jews with these prophecies, God intended to teach them that in seeking for deliverance, they should turn their eyes directly towards Christ. And though they had sadly degenerated, they never entirely lost the knowledge of this general principle, that God, by the hand of Christ, would be the deliverer of the church as he had promised to David and that in this way only the free covenant by which God had adopted his chosen people would be fulfilled. Hence it was that on our Savior's entry into Jerusalem shortly before his death, the children shouted, quote, Hosanna to the Son of David, unquote, Matthew 21, verse 9. For there seems to have been a hymn known to all, and in general use, in which they sang that the only remaining pledge which they had of the divine mercy was the promised advent of a Redeemer. For this reason, Christ tells his disciples to believe in him, in order that they might have a distinct and complete belief in God. Quote, Ye believe in God, believe also in me. Unquote. John 14, verse 1. For although, properly speaking, faith rises from Christ to the Father, he intimates that even when it leans on God, it gradually vanishes away unless he himself interposed to give it solid strength. The majesty of God is too high to be scaled up to by mortals, who creep like worms on the earth. Therefore, the common saying that God is the object of faith requires to be received with some modification. When Christ is called the image of the invisible God, Colossians 1.15, the expression is not used without cause, but is designed to remind us that we can have no knowledge of our salvation until we behold God in Christ. For although the Jewish scribes had by their false glosses darkened what the prophets had taught concerning the Redeemer, yet Christ assumed it to be a fact, received, as it were, with public consent, that there was no other remedy in desperate circumstances, no other mode of delivering the church, than the manifestation of the Mediator. It is true that the fact adverted to by Paul was not so generally known as it ought to have been, viz., that Christ is the end of the law, Romans 10, verse 4 though this is both true and clearly appears both from the law and the prophets. I am not now, however, treating of faith, as we shall elsewhere have a fitter place. Book 3, Chapter 2. 
But what I wish to impress upon my readers in this way is that the first step in piety is to acknowledge that God is a Father, to defend, govern, and cherish us, until he brings us to the eternal inheritance of his kingdom, that hence it is plain, as we lately observed, there is no saving knowledge of God without Christ, and that, consequently, from the beginning of the world, Christ was held forth to all the elect as the object of their faith and confidence. In this sense, Irenaeus says that the Father who is boundless in himself is bounded in the Son, because he has accommodated himself to our capacity, lest our mind should be swallowed up by the immensity of his glory. Fanatics, not attending to this, distort a useful sentiment into an impious dream, as if Christ had only a share of the Godhead as a part taken from a whole, whereas the meaning merely is that God is comprehended in Christ alone. The saying of John was always true, quote, Whosoever denieth the Son, the same hath not the Father. Unquote. 1 John 2, verse 23. For though in old time there were many who boasted that they worshipped the supreme deity, the maker of heaven and earth, yet as they had no mediator, it was impossible for them truly to enjoy the mercy of God, so as to feel persuaded that he was their Father. Not holding the head, that is Christ, their knowledge of God was evanescent and hence they at length fell away to gross and foul superstitions, betraying their ignorance, just as the Turks in the present day, who, though proclaiming with full throat that the Creator of heaven and earth is their God, yet, by their rejection of Christ, substitute an idol in his place. Chapter 7 The Law Given Not to Retain a People for Itself, But to Keep Alive the Hope of Salvation in Christ Until His Advent There are 17 sections. Section 1 from the whole course of the observations now made, we may infer that the law was not superadded about 400 years after the death of Abraham in order that it might lead the chosen people away from Christ, but, on the contrary, to keep them in suspense until his advent, to inflame their desire and confirm their expectation that they might not become dispirited by the long delay. By the law, I understand not only the Ten Commandments, which contain a complete rule of life, but the whole system of religion delivered by the hand of Moses. Moses was not appointed as a lawgiver to do away with the blessing promised to the race of Abraham. Nay, we see that he is constantly reminding the Jews of the free covenant which had been made with their fathers, and of which they were heirs, as if he had been sent for the purpose of renewing it. This is most clearly manifested by the ceremonies, for what could be more vain or frivolous than for men to reconcile themselves to God by offering him the foul odor produced by burning the fat of beasts, or to wipe away their own impurities by besprinkling themselves with water or blood? In short, the whole legal worship, if considered by itself apart from the types and shadows of corresponding truth, is a mere mockery. Wherefore, both in Stephen's address... Acts 7, verse 44, and in the epistle to the Hebrews, great weight is justly given to the passage in which God says to Moses, quote, Look that thou make them after the pattern which was showed thee in the mount, unquote. Exodus 25, verse 40. Had there not been some spiritual end to which they were directed, the Jews, in the observance of them, would have deluded themselves as much as the Gentiles in their vanities. Profane men, who have never made religion their serious study, cannot bear without disgust to hear of such a multiplicity of rites. They not merely wonder why God fatigued his ancient people with such a mass of ceremonies, but they despise and ridicule them as childish toys. This they do because they attend not to the end, from which, if the legal figures are separated, they cannot escape the charge of vanity." 
But the type shows that God did not enjoin sacrifice in order that he might occupy his worshippers with earthly exercises, but rather that he might raise their minds to something higher. This is clear even from his own nature. Being a spirit, he is delighted only with spiritual worship. The same thing is testified by the many passages in which the prophets accuse the Jews of stupidity for imagining that mere sacrifices have any value in the sight of God. Did they by this mean to derogate any respect from the law? By no means, but as interpreters of its true meaning, they wished in this way to turn the attention of the people to the end which they ought to have had in view, but from which they generally wandered. From the grace offered to the Jews, we may certainly infer that the law was not a stranger to Christ. Moses declared the end of the adoption of the Israelites to be that they should be, quote, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, unquote. Exodus 19, verse 6. This they could not attain without a greater and more excellent atonement than the blood of beasts. For what could be less in accordance with reason than that the sons of Adam, who from hereditary taint are all born the slaves of sin, should be raised to royal dignity and in this way made partakers of the glory of God, if the noble distinction were not derived from some other source? How, moreover, could the priestly office exist in vigor among those whose vices rendered them abominable in the sight of God, if they were not consecrated in a holy head? Wherefore, Peter elegantly transposes the words of Moses, teaching that the fullness of grace of which the Jews had a foretaste under the law is exhibited in Christ, quote, Ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, unquote. 1 Peter 2, verse 9. The transposition of the words intimates that those to whom Christ has appeared in the gospel have obtained more than their fathers, inasmuch as they are all endued with priestly and royal honor, and can therefore, trusting to their mediator, appear with boldness in the presence of God. Section 2 And it is to be observed, by the way, that the kingdom which was at length erected in the family of David is part of the law, and is comprehended under the dispensation of Moses. Whence it follows that, as well in the whole tribe of Levi as in the posterity of David, Christ was exhibited to the eyes of the Israelites as in a double mirror. For, as I lately observed in section 1, in no other way could those who were the slaves of sin and death, and defiled with corruption, be either kings or priests. Hence appears the perfect truth of Paul's statement, quote, The law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, unquote. Quote, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, unquote. Galatians 3, verse 24 and 19. For Christ, not yet having been made familiarly known to the Jews, they were like children, whose weakness could not bear a full knowledge of heavenly things. How they were led to Christ by the ceremonial law has already been adverted to, and may be made more intelligible by several passages in the Prophets. Although they were required, in order to appease God, to approach Him daily with new sacrifices, yet Isaiah promises that all their sins would be expiated by one single sacrifice, and with this Daniel concurs. Isaiah 53, verse 5, and Daniel 9, verses 26 and 27. The priests appointed from the tribe of Levi entered the sanctuary, but it was once said of a single priest, quote, the Lord hath sworn, and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. Unquote. Psalm 110, verse 4. The unction of oil was then visible, but Daniel in vision declares that there will be another unction. 
Not to dwell on this, the author of the Epistle of the Hebrews proves clearly and at length from the 4th to the 11th chapter that ceremonies were vain and of no value unless as bringing us to Christ. In regard to the Ten Commandments, we must in like manner attend to the statement of Paul that, quote, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to every one that believeth, unquote. Romans 10, verse 4. And again, that ministers of the New Testament were, quote, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. Unquote. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 6. The former passage intimates that it is in vain to teach righteousness by precept until Christ bestow it by free imputation and the regeneration of the Spirit. Hence he properly calls Christ the end or fulfilling of the law, because it would avail us nothing to know what God demands did not Christ come to the succor of those who are laboring and oppressed under an intolerable yoke and burden. In another place he says that the law, quote, was added because of transgressions, unquote, Galatians 3, verse 19, that it might humble men under a sense of their condemnation. Moreover, inasmuch as this is the only true preparation for Christ, the statements, though made in different words, perfectly agree with each other. But because he had to dispute with perverse teachers, who pretended that men merited justification by the works of the law, he was sometimes obliged, in refuting their error, to speak of the law in a more restricted sense, merely as law, though, in other respects, the covenant of free adoption is comprehended under it. Section 3 But in order that a sense of guilt may urge us to seek for pardon, it is of importance to know how our being instructed in the moral law renders us more inexcusable. If it is true that a perfect righteousness is set before us in the law, it follows that the complete observance of it is perfect righteousness in the sight of God, that is, a righteousness by which a man may be deemed and pronounced righteousness at the divine tribunal. Wherefore Moses, after promulgating the law, hesitates not to call heaven and earth to witness that he had set life and death, good and evil, before the people. Nor can it be denied that the reward of eternal salvation as promised by the Lord awaits the perfect obedience of the law. Deuteronomy 30, verse 19. Again, however, it is of importance to understand in what way we perform that obedience for which we justly entertain the hope of that reward. For of what use is it to see that the reward of eternal life depends on the observance of the law, unless it moreover appears whether it be in our power in that way to attain to eternal life? Herein, then, the weakness of the law is manifested. For in none of us is that righteousness of the law manifested, and therefore, being excluded from the promises of life, we again fall under the curse. I state not only what happens, but what must necessarily happen. The doctrine of the law transcending our capacity, a man may indeed look from a distance at the promises held forth, but he cannot derive any benefit from them. The only thing, therefore, remaining for him is, from their excellence, to form a better estimate of his own misery. While he considers that the hope of salvation is cut off, and he is threatened with certain death. On the other hand, those fearful denunciations which strike not at a few individuals, but at every individual without exception, rise up. Rise up, I say, and with inexorable severity pursue us, so that nothing but instant death is presented by the law. Section 4. Therefore, if we look merely to the law, the result must be despondency, confusion, and despair, seeing that by it we are all cursed and condemned, while we are kept far away from the blessedness which it holds forth to its observers. Is the Lord then, you will ask, only sporting with us? Is it not the next thing to mockery, to hold out the hope of happiness, to invite and exhort us to it? 
to declare that it is set before us, while all the while the entrance to it is precluded and quite shut up? I answer, although the promises, insofar as they are conditional, depend on a perfect obedience of the law, which is nowhere to be found, they have not, however, been given in vain. For when we have learned that the promises would be fruitless and unavailing, did not God accept us of his free goodness, without any view to our works, and when, having so learned, we by faith embrace the goodness thus offered in the gospel, the promises with all their annexed conditions are fully accomplished. For God, while bestowing all things upon us freely, crowns his goodness by not disdaining our imperfect obedience, forgiving its deficiencies, accepting it as if it were complete, and so bestowing upon us the full amount of what the law has promised. But as this point will be more fully discussed in treating of justification by faith, we shall not follow it further at present. Section 5 What has been said as to the impossible observance of the law, it will be proper briefly to explain and confirm the general opinion being that nothing can be more absurd. Hence Jerome has not hesitated to denounce anathema against it. What Jerome thought, I care not. Let us inquire what is the truth. I will not here enter into a long and intricate discussion on the various kinds of possibility. By impossible I mean that which never was, and being prevented by the ordination and decree of God, never will be. I say that if we go back to the remotest period, we shall not find a single saint who, clothed with a mortal body, ever attained to such perfection as to love the Lord with all his heart, and soul, and mind, and strength and, on the other hand, not one who has not felt the power of concupiscence. Who can deny this? I am aware, indeed, of a kind of saints whom a foolish superstition imagines, and whose purity the angels of heaven scarcely equal. This, however, is repugnant both to scripture and experience. But I say further that no saint ever will attain to perfection so long as he is in the body. Scripture bears clear testimony to this effect. Quote, there is no man that sinneth not, Unquote, saith Solomon, First Kings, eight, verse forty-six. David says, quote, "In thy sight shall no man living be justified." Unquote. Psalm one hundred and forty-three, verse two. Job also, in numerous passages, affirms the same thing. But the clearest of all is Paul, who declares that quote, the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. Unquote. Galatians five, verse seventeen. And he proves that, quote, as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, unquote, for the simple reason that it is written, quote, Cursed is every one that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them, unquote. Galatians 3, verse 10, and Deuteronomy 27, verse 26, intimating, or rather assuming it as confessed, that none can so continue. But whatever has been declared by Scripture must be regarded as perpetual, and hence necessary. The Pelagians annoyed Augustine with the sophism that it was insulting to God to hold that he orders more than believers are able by his grace to perform, and he, in order to evade it, acknowledged that the Lord was able, if he chose, to raise a mortal man to angelic purity, but that he had never done and never would do it, because so the scripture had declared. This I deny not, but I add that there is no use in absurdly disputing concerning the power of God in opposition to his truth and therefore there is no ground for cavilling, when it is said that that thing cannot be which the scripture declare will never be. But if it is the word that is objected to, I refer to the answer which our Savior gave to his disciples when they asked, quote, Who then can be saved? Unquote. Quote, with men, unquote, said he, quote, This is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Unquote. 
Matthew 19, verse 25. Augustine argues in the most convincing manner that while in the flesh we never can give God the love which we owe him. Quote, love so follows knowledge that no man can perfectly love God who has not previously a full comprehension of his goodness. Unquote. So long as we are pilgrims in the world, we see through a glass darkly, and therefore our love is imperfect. Let it therefore be held incontrovertible that in consequence of the feebleness of our nature, it is impossible for us, so long as we are in the flesh, to fulfill the law. This will also be proved elsewhere from the writings of Paul. Romans 8, verse 3. Section 6. That the whole matter may be made clear, let us take a succinct view of the office and use of the moral law. Now, this office and use seems to me to consist of three parts. First, by exhibiting the righteousness of God, in other words, the righteousness which alone is acceptable to God. It admonishes everyone his own unrighteousness, certiorates, convicts, and finally condemns him. This is necessary in order that man, who is blind and intoxicated with self-love, may be brought at once to know and to confess his weakness and impurity. For until his vanity is made perfectly manifest, he is puffed up with infatuated confidence in his own powers, and never can be brought to feel their feebleness so long as he measures them by a standard of his own choice. So soon, however, as he begins to compare them with the requirements of the law, he has something to tame his presumption. How high soever his opinion of his own powers may be, he immediately feels that they pant under the heavy load, then totter and stumble, and finally fall and give way. He then, who is schooled by the law, lays aside the arrogance which formerly blinded him. In like manner must he be cured of pride, the other disease under which we have said that he labors. So long as he is permitted to appeal to his own judgment, he substitutes a hypocritical for a real righteousness, and, contented with this, sets up certain factitious observances in opposition to the grace of God. But after he is forced to weigh his conduct in the balance of the law, renouncing all dependence on this fancied righteousness, he sees that he is at an infinite distance from holiness, and on the other hand, that he teems with innumerable vices of which he formerly seemed free. The recesses in which concupiscence lies hid are so deep and tortuous that they easily elude our view, and hence the apostle had good reason for saying, quote, I had not known lust, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet, unquote. For if it be not brought forth from its lurking places, it miserably destroys in secret before its fatal sting is discerned. Section 7. Thus the law is a kind of mirror. As in a mirror we discover any stains upon our face, so in the law we behold first our impotence, then in consequence of it our iniquity, and finally the curse as the consequence of both. He who has no power of following righteousness is necessarily plunged in the mire of iniquity, and this iniquity is immediately followed by the curse. Accordingly, the greater the transgression of which the law convicts us, the severer the judgment to which we are exposed. To this effect is the Apostle's declaration that, quote, By the law is the knowledge of sin, unquote. Romans 3, verse 20. By these words, he only points out the first office of the law as experienced by sinners not yet regenerated. In conformity to this, it is said, quote, The law entered that the offense might abound, unquote, and accordingly that it is, quote, the ministration of death, unquote, that it, quote, worketh wrath, unquote, and kills. Romans 5, verse 20, 2 Corinthians 3, verse 7, Romans 4, verse 15. For there cannot be a doubt that the clearer the consciousness of guilt, the greater the increase of sin because then to transgression a rebellious feeling against the lawgiver is added. 
All that remains for the law is to arm the wrath of God for the destruction of the sinner, for by itself it can do nothing but accuse, condemn, and destroy him. Thus Augustine says, quote, If the Spirit of grace be absent, the law is present only to convict and slay us. Unquote. But to say this neither insults the law, nor derogates in any degree from its excellence. Assuredly, if our whole will were formed and disposed to obedience, the mere knowledge of the law would be sufficient for salvation. But since our carnal and corrupt nature is at enmity with the divine law, and is in no degree amended by its discipline, the consequence is that the law which, if it had been properly attended to, would have given life, becomes the occasion of sin and death. When all are convicted of transgression, the more it declares the righteousness of God, the more, on the other hand, it discloses our iniquity, the more certainly it assures us that life and salvation are treasured up as the reward of righteousness, the more certainly it assures us that the unrighteous will perish. So far, however, are these qualities from throwing disgrace on the law that their chief tendency is to give a brighter display of the divine goodness. For they show that it is only our weakness and depravity that prevents us from enjoying the blessedness which the law openly sets before us. Hence additional sweetness is given to divine grace, which comes to our aid without the law, and additional loveliness to the mercy which confers it, because they proclaim that God is never weary in doing good and in loading us with new gifts. Section 8. But while the unrighteousness and condemnation of all are attested by the law, it does not follow, if we make the proper use of it, that we are immediately to give up all hope and rush headlong on despair. No doubt it has some such effect upon the reprobate, but this is owing to their obstinacy. With the children of God the effect is different. The apostle testifies that the law pronounces its sentence of condemnation in order, quote, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God." Unquote. Romans 3, verse 19. In another place, however, the same apostle declares that, quote, God hath concluded them all in unbelief, unquote. not that he might destroy all, or allow all to perish, but that, quote, he might have mercy upon all, unquote. Romans 11, verse 32. In other words, that divesting themselves of an absurd opinion of their own virtue, they may perceive how they are wholly dependent on the hand of God, that feeling how naked and destitute they are, they may take refuge in his mercy, rely upon it, and cover themselves up entirely with it, renouncing all righteousness and merit, and clinging to mercy alone, as offered in Christ to all who long and look for it in true faith. In the precepts of the law, God is seen as the rewarder only of perfect righteousness, a righteousness of which all are destitute, and, on the other hand, as the stern avenger of wickedness. But in Christ, his countenance beams forth full of grace and gentleness towards poor, unworthy sinners. Section 9. There are many passages in Augustine as to the utility of the law in leading us to implore divine assistance. Thus he writes to Hilary, quote, the law orders that we, after attempting to do what is ordered, and so feeling our weakness under the law, may learn to implore the help of grace. Unquote. In like manner, he writes to Asilius, quote, The utility of the law is that it convinces man of his weakness, and compels him to apply for the medicine of grace, which is in Christ. Unquote. In like manner, he says to Innocentius Romanos, quote, The law orders, grace supplies the power of acting. Unquote. Again to Valentius, Quote, God enjoins what we cannot do, in order that we may know what we have to ask of him. Unquote. Again, quote, the law was given, that it might make you guilty. Being made guilty, might fear. Fearing, 
might ask indulgence, not presume on your own strength, unquote. Again, quote, the law was given in order to convert a great into a little man, to show that you have no power of your own for righteousness, and might thus poor, needy, and destitute flee to grace, unquote. He afterwards thus addresses the Almighty, quote, So do, O Lord, so do, O merciful Lord, command what cannot be fulfilled, nay, command what cannot be fulfilled, unless by thy own grace so that when men feel they have no strength in themselves to fulfill it, every mouth may be stopped, and no man seem great in his own eyes. Let all be little ones. Let the whole world become guilty before God." Unquote. But I am forgetting myself in producing so many passages, since this holy man wrote a distinct treatise, which he entitled, De Spiritu et de Litera. The utter branch of this first use he does not describe so distinctly, either because he knew that it depended on the former, or because he was not so well aware of it, or because he wanted words in which he might distinctly and clearly explain its proper meaning. But even in the reprobate themselves, this first office of the law is not altogether wanting. They do not, indeed, proceed so far with the children of God as, after the flesh is cast down, to be renewed in the inner man, and revive again. But stunned by the first terror, give way to despair." still it tends to manifest the equity of the divine judgment, when their consciences are thus heaved upon the waves. They would always willingly carp at the judgment of God, but now, though that judgment is not manifested, still the alarm produced by the testimony of the law and of their conscience bespeaks their deserts. Section 10. The second office of the law is, by means of its fearful denunciations and the consequent dread of punishment, to curb those who, unless forced, have no regard for rectitude and justice. Such persons are curbed, not because their mind is inwardly moved and affected, but because, as if a bridle were laid upon them, they refrain their hands from external acts, and internally check the depravity which would otherwise petulantly burst forth. It is true, they are not on this account either better or more righteous in the sight of God, for although restrained by terror or shame, they dare not proceed what their mind has conceived, nor give full license to their raging lust. Their heart is by no means trained to fear and obedience. Nay, the more they restrain themselves, the more they are inflamed, the more they rage and boil, prepared for any act or outbreak whatsoever, were it not for the terror of the law. And not only so, but they thoroughly detest the law itself and execrate the lawgiver so that, if they could, they would most willingly annihilate him, because they cannot bear either his ordering what is right, or his avenging the despisers of his majesty. The feeling of all who are not yet regenerate, though in some more, in others less lively, is that in regard to the observance of the law they are not led by voluntary submission, but dragged by the force of fear. Nevertheless, this forced and extorted righteousness is necessary for the good of society, its peace being secured by provision for which all things would be thrown into tumult and confusion. Nay, this tuition is not without its use, even to the children of God, who previous to their effectual calling, being destitute of the spirit of holiness, freely indulge the lusts of the flesh. When, by the fear of divine vengeance, they are deterred from open outbreakings, though, from not being subdued in mind, they profit little at present, Still they are in some measure trained to bear the yoke of righteousness, so that when they are called, they are not like mere novices, studying a discipline of which previously they had no knowledge. 
This office seems to be especially in the view of the apostle when he says, quote, that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and for sinners, for unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind, for men-stealers, for liars, for perjured persons, and if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. Unquote. 1 Timothy 1, verses 9 and 10. He thus indicates that it is a restraint on unruly lusts that would otherwise burst all bonds. Section 11. To both may be applied the declaration of the Apostle in another place, that, quote, The law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ. Unquote. Galatians 3, verse 24. Since there are two classes of persons, whom, by its training, it leads to Christ, some of whom we spoke in the first place, from excessive confidence in their own virtue or righteousness, are unfit to receive the grace of Christ until they are completely humbled. This the law does by making them sensible of their misery, and so disposing them to long for what they previously imagined they did not want. Others have need of a bridle to restrain them from giving full scope to their passions, and thereby utterly losing all desire after righteousness. For where the Spirit of God rules not, the lusts sometimes so burst forth as to threaten to drown the soul subjected to them in forgetfulness and contempt of God. And so they would, did not God interpose with this remedy. Those, therefore, whom he has destined to the inheritance of his kingdom, if he does not immediately regenerate, he, through the works of the law, preserves in fear against the time of his visitation, not indeed that pure and chaste fear which his children ought to have, but a fear useful to the extent of instructing them in true piety according to their capacity. Of this we have so many proofs that there is not the least need of an example. For all who have remained for some time in ignorance of God will confess as a result of their own experience that the law had the effect of keeping them in some degree in the fear and reverence of God till, being regenerated by His Spirit, they began to love Him from the heart. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources as well as our complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts are on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096 or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, AB, Canada, T6L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you do have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com or swrb at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. SWRB's email list is a double opt-in list, so once you've sent us your email address, you will be asked by email to confirm that you want to join our list using the email address you have supplied. Your email information will be kept confidential and you can easily remove yourself from our email list by simply emailing us at swrb at swrb.com with the word remove in the subject line. 
Once you are on our email list, you will be alerted to all the new free Reformation resources, free MP3s, free electronic books and text, etc. SWRD makes available on the web, as well as, at times, to our best discounts and super specials. We also encourage you to reproduce this audio resource and to pass it on to your friends, but we only authorize this as long as the full content of the message, including the header and trailer, is not altered in any way and as long as the audio file or cassette is given away for free. Thank you again for listening to this SWRB reading, and remember that Isaiah 26 free states, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. And 2 Corinthians 13.11 concludes, Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace shall be with you.